Today's reading is from Acts, um, chapter 4, reading from verses 1 to 13. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of the men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we, are, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you Christ, who you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else alone. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Thank you, Harry. <clears throat> Let's pray that God would have a word for each of us that would encourage us. Would you join me in praying? Father God, we thank you for the scriptures. And we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. We pray that you'd soften our hearts to make us teachable. And you'd come and help me as I speak to lift you up, Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, as I welcome you uh, again this morning, let me remind you that we are in a little series about sharing our faith. And this morning, I want to talk to the title, What Dynamite and the Gospel Have Got in Common? Let me describe a situation that will be familiar to, uh, I'm sure, all of us actually. You come back from a holiday or maybe it's a business trip and you fly into the UK, maybe it's Gatwick or it's Heathrow or similar, and you reunite with your luggage and then you head for the exit and you have a choice to make. And the choice that you have to make is, do you have something to declare or do you have nothing to declare? And in my life so far, I have absolutely nothing of interest to declare to the customs people, so it's been a very easy choice. So far, so good. But now let's change the setting just slightly, and you're leaving St. Michael's this morning, and someone sees that you've been in church, and they look warm and friendly, and you look warm and friendly, 
And so they come towards you and they ask you a question, a very innocent question. It's obviously not a hostile question the way they ask it to you. It's just a curious question, well, a, a question arising from their curiosity. And they say, and you've been in church, haven't you? And they ask you in a warm, friendly way, why on earth would you want to be in a place like that? And here's the question. Do you have something to declare? Or do you have nothing to declare? Would you know what to say? How would you feel if someone gave you an opportunity to share your faith? Because as I said last week, if you've been following Christ for any length of time, you know it's something we're meant to be doing. But if you're honest with yourself, most of us find it pretty difficult. And here's what happens when we get faced with a question like that. We hesitate. We hesitate. And here's why. Oftentimes, because we just don't know what to say. We feel unprepared. But then a second thing hits us. We feel unqualified. To be frank, I've got lots of questions that I don't even know how to answer. So I'm slightly nervous about opening up a conversation in which you might have questions I might not know how to answer. But here's the major reason why most of us might hesitate and perhaps stumble. Frankly, we've lost confidence in the message itself. There's just a part of us that says, if I were to make myself vulnerable and share what I believe, I'm not sure it'd make a hapeth of difference in your life. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's worth the risk of the ridicule or the rejection or the hesitation that I feel. And so we sort of, so often, dread being asked and duck the half opportunities that were there for take. Well, the objective of this talk this morning is to put the confidence back in the message that we have to share, to remind us and point out to us the inherent power of the good news, the gospel. Now, in a moment, I will explain what the gospel is. But the number one point I want us to register is what the gospel has in common with dynamite is an inbuilt power. It is inherently powerful. Paul writes to the followers of Christ in Rome, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power of salvation for those who believe. And that word that he uses there, God's power, is a Greek word dynamis from which we get the word dynamite. And Inherent in dynamite or semtex or similar it is this explosive power that comes with the territory of dynamite. And Paul is saying, built into the whole fabric of the gospel is this built-in power. I could, this morning, have brought along a, a jerry can or a petrol can full of petrol. And I could have put it on the floor over there and I unscrewed the top. And I could have taken a box of matches and I could have lit a match and walked towards the jerry can. And hopefully someone in the congregation would have said, stop, Rupert, bad idea. And the reason would have been, because if you start messing around with naked flames in front of petrol, you would get an explosion. It's, it's built into what happens. Let, let's continue with the petrol illustration for a bit. 
and imagine yourself at a petrol station or you're watching me as I fill my car up with petrol, which I do because it's not electric. And I go with great confidence to the petrol pump and I fill up the car with petrol, pay for it, and then I get back into the car. I don't know how it works, the internal combustion engine, but I do know that it does work. And somehow it, it's empowered by the petrol that goes forward. No problem. But now suppose that you're sitting behind me in the petrol station and instead of filling up the car with petrol, I fill it up with water. Well, if I get back into the car and try and start it and go forward, nothing's going to happen. So I resort to getting out and pushing. And you would be quite right. You'd say, what an idiotic way to own a car and try to run it. But that is a good illustration of what we do with the gospel. It's like instead of filling ourselves up and sharing a petroleum-filled gospel, we think it's water that we're sharing with people. So we doubt that it's going to have any power at all, so we get out and push. It's a ridiculous state of affairs. And no wonder we don't want to really share the gospel. We've lost confidence in that inherent power. And my job today is to put it back again. Now, obviously, I can't tell us in one session of about 20 minutes all there is to know about the gospel but what I am going to do is I'm going to highlight a number of things from this incident in Acts chapter 4 which are the highlights if you like Rupert's selective highlights of what should be included in the message from God which is called the good news or the gospel let me as we approach the topic just deal with that very real hesitation that we have I'm not good enough I don't have all the answers. And let me tell you, you're quite right. In a manner of speaking, you're not good enough and you don't have all the answers. But in every manner of speaking, the people at the center of this story, Peter and John, were not good enough and they didn't have the answers either. But it didn't stop them delivering faithfully the message. And in fact, one of the things that those they were standing before, the rulers, the priests, the Sanhedrin, one of the things that struck them we're told, because it's recorded by Luke, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's the most important thing as far as your and my credentials. It's not your IQ. It's not how long you've been a Christian. It's not how coherent and fluent you are. It's that you've spent time with Jesus. That will shine. We need to take confidence from the fact that actually no one can convert anyone else. It's far too big a deal. When someone decides that they're going to follow Christ, you and I can't manufacture that. We can't make it happen. Only God can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. He will. The power is in the good news. Our job is to bring people close enough that they can connect with Jesus and understand and see and hear what he's done. When we talk about Jesus, the aroma of the gospel begins to spread. I wonder if you've ever noticed that in a lot of supermarkets, when you go into the supermarkets, it's carefully arranged that the lovely smell of freshly baked bread meets you at the door. You ever notice that? It's piped round, I think, to the door. And then the actual fresh bread baking department is in the farthest part of the department sort of a store to make you trawl round to 
check out the bread. You know, we use the phrase, don't we, can you smell the coffee? You know, with the idea of you, you get drawn into something where you get a hint of what there is there. The good news is very like that. And as you look at this passage, what stands out is the good news centers around Jesus. As I've said, we could be here for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I could be talking solidly throughout that time on different aspects of the good news, but I'm not going to do that. But I am picking highlights. And this is for sure. If you want to share the good news, you are going to have to get the name of Jesus out. Just skim this passage. The priests and the captain of the temple guard were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus. And then what do they say when they're called to account? If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness to a man who was lame, it's by the name of Jesus Christ. And then again, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. Or to really mince the point and bring it home, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so, in a way, it's a triumph to their faithfulness that when they drag Peter and John back before those in judgment, and they're given this sentence, they called them in again and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That tells us how clearly they spoke. Jesus is at the heart of the good news. Now, friends, here's the first uh, thing that's going to be a challenge. Lots of people haven't the foggiest idea who Jesus was or what he did. So how can you even begin to express an opinion about someone you know nothing about? Well, the answer is actually very easily. I think it's the most common reason that people are not followers of Christ is that they have made up their minds and rejected Christianity without looking at Christ. Now, I'm about to do something which is extraordinarily unfair. It's very unfair on an extremely distinguished scientist called Francis Collins. Francis Collins uh, was head of the Genome Project and he was director of the National Institute of Health in America. He, he is a, a, a top, top scientist. And I'm being really unfair on him because I'm going to show you a two-minute clip. It's just two minutes. And it's selected out of him actually telling a longer story of how he becomes a Christian. But what I want to illustrate, because he, he articulates it so well, is that many people start their journey in the place that he expresses here, which is a decision based on ignorance. So uh, let, let's watch what he has to say. Genetics. But then I ended up in, in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. 
And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that face, she turned to me, and I had been silent, and she looked at me quizzically, and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately, I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. Interesting, isn't it? And um, our job is to help people make a decision based on evidence. And to do that, it requires them to look at the evidence, at least familiarize themselves with the life of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things you and I can do to be prepared is to think for yourself this morning. Just think, what is it about Jesus Christ that draws me to him? If I had to talk to someone and you have the opportunity at the end of this service and just share with them, what is it that I find remarkable or attractive or worth following about Jesus? because I knew I was preaching a sermon, destined to preach it, uh, I've been reading through Mark's gospel again, asking myself that question, rethinking the question, what is it, Rupert, that you find so fascinating about Jesus? What's, what stands out? And, and actually, it's very different than my thoughts when I was a 20-year-old when a friend challenged me and said, have you ever read an account of Jesus' life for yourself? because I think you should before we argue about him. And back then I went and read John's gospel. I still love him for all the reasons I loved him back then, but I appreciate him more for different things. If I'm gonna talk from the heart about Jesus to someone else, I better say to myself, what is it that's drawing me to him? Because it's necessary to talk about Jesus. And something I've noticed is that we can't assume any knowledge at all on the part of the people that we're speaking to. They, they may well, just like me when I was 20, they may well never actually have read for themselves through an account of Jesus' life. So we have to help them here. We, maybe we tell them a story of something that Jesus did. Maybe we say, what would you think? What would you think of somebody who could say, let's say, turn water into wine or walk on water? or heal someone with the word. Just something that feeds them a little bit of territory about Jesus. Well, the gospel of Roma begins to spread when we talk and focus on Jesus. That's part of our good news. But not just talking about him as a person, that's a very good avenue to pursue, but also to try and explain why did he come? What was the motivation behind his mission? And here the answer is quite simple. Simple to say, but harder to explain maybe. Love. Love. Love is what drove Jesus to come. When my friend challenged me to read John's Gospel back in, in 1980, I, I very quickly came across this verse, which you'll know. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Not God was so fed up with the world, he thought, I'll go down and show him. God so loved the world. 
And, and really the question is, so how do you show, how would God show that he does love the world? How do you show that you love someone? Well, I think you show that you love someone like this. You, you spend time with them. Pretty hard to convince me you love me if you don't spend time with me. Uh, you put yourself out for them. You let them into your thinking. You share what's going on in your head and your heart. You share yourself with them. Ultimately, I think, you put their interests above your interests and their well-being above yours. And frankly, if you want a model of this, just look at any good parent and think about your parents, if they were good parents, that they gave up lots for you. They were awake at night. They gave up their sleep time. They gave up their waking time. They spent money on you. And they shared their heart with you. They went out of their way to please you, etc., etc. But God has done all of that. Jesus has done all of that. It was his love that made him draw place. It was his love that made him share his heart with his disciples and his friends. It was his love that enabled him to serve others. And his big one, it was his love that caused him to lay down his life for others, the cross. And at the cross is the very epicenter of the good news. If it was an earthquake, this would be where the maximum force is, the cross and the resurrection. And so in Acts chapter four, Peter will say, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. He wants them to know about the crucifixion and resurrection. Now, here's a challenging place to stand. This is a really challenging thing to talk about. And it's not all that easy because it's a paradox. The most powerful thing we have to say, which is about the cross, looks and seems the very weakest part of our message. Doesn't it? It looks so flimsy. It, it looks so powerless. And, and that's what Paul says. He, he says... You know, the Greeks wanted wisdom. They wanted something really sophisticated. But all I can offer you is a naked man who's been shamed, dying a torturous death. It doesn't look macho in the least. It looks pathetic. But God's wisdom, he says, is greater than man's. God's wisdom is foolishness to man, but that's where wisdom lies. And he, he's so well aware as he talks about the cross. It looks weak. But that is where God's power is. There's a magnetic attraction to the cross. Strangely. Jesus says, it's his calling card. He says, when I'm lifted up, talking about the cross, I'll draw all people to myself. Now, how does that work out? How? Well, I think there's something quite obvious going on there and there's something not at all obvious. What is obvious is Jesus is saying, I love you this much. I love you so much, I'll lay down my life for you. And I, it has to be said, I think sacrificial death is always impressive and always moving. And there are plenty of people who have died sacrificial deaths throughout history. But there is something unique in Jesus' death, which no one else has done and no one else could do. He 
bridges the gap between man and God. That is at the heart of his mission. And frankly, this is difficult to explain. There is a word stuck in here which is really hard to explain to our generation. And you might have picked it up when Peter said, there is no other name by which we must be saved. And that made complete sense to the listeners back in Peter's day. But I think most of my friends would scratch their head and say, Rupert, what are you talking about? What do I need saving from? I'm not even aware. What, what is his salvation business? That's just not language I use. Well, I'll tell you what you're being saved from or what Jesus offers to save us from. It's the normal template of life. And the normal template of life, the default template, which everyone walks in without thinking about it, is me first, me first, me first. I will organize my life around what pleases me, what brings pleasure to me, uh, what's expected of me, that's how I'm going to do life. But there's something really big missing there. And the thing that's really big, that's really missing, is what about connecting with God and trying to ask him, your creator, what his purpose for your life was? Because he would love to walk alongside us in life. But there's such a big gap between us that we don't know how to bridge that gap until, until God sends his son Jesus, and he says, I can show you a different way of living. I will model to you a life that is based on walking in communion with God the Father. I can introduce you to a new purpose in life that you know nothing about, but if you come to me, I'll help you. But before you can live for me, you need my help to start again. And you need, in fact, to be forgiven to be forgiven for leaving me out, for cutting me dead. It's not easy to explain to people. It's not even easy to realize in our own heart that we're off the rails and need putting back on the rails. I like this little story I'm about to tell you, though I, I don't doubt for a minute that it's completely untrue, but it's a good illustration. About a supposed mafia godfather whose brother has just been murdered in a revenge killing. And this godfather character hauls in the local priest and tells him that he will give the priest a small fortune, certainly enough to um, enable his church to run comfortably and for him to live comfortably for the next few years, on one condition, that when he talks at, the brother of his funeral, of, at the, his brother's funeral, he says that his brother is a saint. Well, this is a bit of a problem to the priest because uh, it's so well known that the brother was also a mafia gangster. But he doesn't want to lose that promise of a crock of gold and a comfortable life. So when the funeral comes round, this is what the priest said. We're burying today a complete scoundrel, a good-for-nothing. He was violent, unscrupulous, unfaithful, dishonest. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> and... The annoying thing is, that is how most of us actually can cruise through life. We kind of think we can claim the crock of gold on the basis that, well, you know, we, we know other people are a bit more dodgy than us. But that is not what a saint is. 
Compared to others, you might look saintly, but compared to Jesus, we all look shabby because the quality of our life and our life choices are so substandard compared to his. Not measured against the gold standard, you and I probably have more gold in this world than Jesus ever owned, but in terms of the God standard, how we relate to God, we need all the help we can get. And friends, frankly, I'm talking to you today about how to share the gospel that has power. Frankly, this is a bit of the gospel that people sidestep. It's much easier to talk about, let's talk about Jesus, what an amazing character he was. I mean, that's actually quite hard, but it's, it's easier to highlight what an amazing person he was, what incredible teaching he brings, what incredible things he did. But that's not the whole gospel. Because part of the good news is the bad news that we need forgiving, that we're in a mess and we need saving. And that is the bit we have to communicate. And here's the acid test which you can run through your mind when you want to know if you've done a proper job in actually sharing the gospel or even receiving the gospel for that matter. Here is the acid test. When you share the good news about Jesus, you will find yourself explaining that we need to respond in one way. And I'm going to use a very old-fashioned word because it's used in scripture. We need to repent. Now, that word's often misunderstood, but it means basically you need to resolve you're going to start life again. You're going to turn around and begin again. But this time, instead of being self-centered, you're going to ask God to lead you into a God-centered life. And that's what the life of a Christ follower is. It's repent and believe the gospel. It is turn around and start again a new life. And if ever you find yourself living a life which doesn't involve repentance, you know that you've walked off track. And if ever you discover that you're preaching or sharing with your friends a faith that doesn't call for life change, you know you haven't fully explained the gospel. Now, I knew I'd have to be selective in what I said today, so let me put my hand up. I haven't fully explained the gospel to you. I haven't talked about the resurrection. The resurrection's at the heart of all these talks in the book of Acts, all these speeches. It deserves a whole talk on its own. I haven't talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in evangelism, and I'll do that in a fortnight's time. But I hope, I hope that I've begun to highlight to you some of the strength and inherent power of the message that God has given us. And I want to end with a question a question I asked near the beginning, actually. So have you anything to declare? Have you anything to declare? And if, like me, you're a follower of Christ, you do have something to declare. And what it is, is not a declaration of independence. That was your old way of life. This new and current way of life is a declaration of reliance. Total reliance on the kindness and mercy and love of God. And I know no better way of expressing this than by sharing with you two verses of an old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless 
look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let's pray.